Amen. Man, it's good to be back with y'all. Thank for, for Joel uh, sharing with y'all, giving you a word of encouragement from the book of Thessalonians, the letter to the church in Thessalonica. Last week, know you appreciated that. Love that brother's heart for the Lord, his heart for this church, and for God's glory. And so this morning, we begin a four-week look at the topic of citizenship. Um, there's an election going on. Uh, maybe some of you have managed to miss that. Blessings, let me know how you've done that. Um, love to pursue that course with you next time around. But there's an election coming around, and it has been uh, contentious since about 2016, uh, as people have ramped up for this. And there's something I read a, a few weeks ago that's really going to kind of sit at the heart of what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And so I want to start uh, there, and then we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. If you can do two things at once, you can listen and turn to Genesis 11 at the same time. If not, you can just wait. I often read out of this little book called The Valley of Vision um, as a kind of tag along to my Bible reading, my prayer, and time spent journaling. It just desiring to hear from the Lord, asking God that he would set my heart on a path that would bring him glory and honor in all things. And so I found it to be helpful for me in bringing out things that I might otherwise miss. It's a collection of uh, prayers from Puritans and writings and different things that I found to be inspirational and encouraging over the years. And in one address, and simply referred to as the Savior, this is what he writes. He says, May your dear Son preserve me from this present evil world, so that its smiles never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I seek a country, my title to it becoming daily more clear, my appropriateness for it more perfect, my foretaste of it more abundant, and whatsoever I do, may it be done in the Savior's name. So at the heart of what they're saying is this understanding which is so incredibly helpful, or has been so incredibly helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for you, that over the next few weeks, we're going to take a hard look at what it looks like to be a citizen. And in that, we're not taking a look necessarily at what it looks like to be an American citizen. What we're doing in that is taking a look at first and foremost what it looks like for us to be citizens of God's kingdom. Now listen. The way that we go through this time, Christian, the way that you and I go through this time in this church and in other churches of this community and beyond is going to either validate where we are in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ or it's going to communicate to the world around us they don't really believe all that they say they believe. Look at how their emotions rise and fall on the basis of who their leaders are. Look at how they pour out their hearts and look at how they are swayed and they're happy and they're sad on the basis of passing things and the unfolding events of history. If we truly believe God to be sovereign and if we truly believe that we are first and foremost citizens of his kingdom, then how we enter this time and how we go about and go through these days is decidedly different from our non-believing neighbors. 
who place their hope, who place their trust, who place their assurance in finding salvation in electing one party over the other or resolving themselves simply to say, let's just burn the whole thing to the ground. They're placing their salvation and their hope in something that will not last. But as Christians, God has invited us into this relationship and says, place your hope and trust in me. I will persevere. Place your hope and trust in me. I will come again. Place your hope and trust in me. I am the eternal one, and behold, he is coming again. Amen? So for the next four weeks, we have opportunity to allow God to form and fashion our hearts, to allow God to expose those hopes, those desires in us, which are not at home with Scripture. We have an opportunity over the next few weeks to allow God to look at our hearts, to expose our sinful predispositions, and in some of us, to pull us out of a false hope that disappoints and call us into a lasting hope that endures in Jesus. It's going to be a challenge for us. But if we will be faithful to endure, if we will be faithful to remain steadfast, then the abundance of fruit and the joy that God is able to bring in our lives and through our lives, the impact that he's able to bring in this community and beyond will have eternal repercussions. Amen? Amen. Flip to Genesis chapter 11 and keep your finger there. Genesis chapter 11 opens up, and what we read is the Tower of Babel. It's an incredibly short narrative, nine verses. But prior to this opening up, we recognize that humanity's already gone through a lot, right? So Genesis opens up, and what we find is Moses writes the story of this creator God who spoke all of creation into existence. Into the vast sea of nothing, God said, let there be light and he created man and woman he created everything that moved among the uh, the ground he created the trees the sky he created everything nothing existed that God hadn't created and all that existed God had spoken life into and into the midst of this perfect creation there comes this nefarious character who seeks to lead Adam and Eve astray and he hooks them and pulls them in with this lie that if you eat of the tree then you can be like God And then then that moment, in some sense, they found themselves being dissatisfied with the relationship they had before the Lord. And they found themselves being dissatisfied in the incompleteness of the perfection that he had created them to be. So what did they do? Said it looks good for eating, they took and they ate. And in, in eating and in rebelling against God, they led all of humanity into what the Bible referred to as the fall. They sinned against God, and he sent them out of the garden, out of perfection, out from his presence, out from the intimate fellowship that they had previously enjoyed with him. And so there they are, Adam and Eve are out, and like any young family, they begin to turn their efforts to having children, and this young family begins to grow, and there's a little bit of strife early on where one son kills another, but as they move on down through the line, what we find is that all of humanity begins to grow from this early movement into this, this riotous group. And everyone's pursuing what's in their own heart, and everyone's pursuing their own path of ruin. And what we find is we come to this mass group of people, and they are engaged in every hedonist form of of pleasure set before them. They say, I want to do this, and they go out and do it. I want to do that, they go out and do it. And so God looks at creation, and he is mournful, the Bible tells us, that he has made man. 
And so in surveying humanity, his gaze lands upon Noah, and in Noah he finds one righteous. Yes, you can make eye contact. He finds one righteous, and he reckons him righteous. And to this righteous man, he sends him out, and he says, listen, go be a preacher of righteousness. Call all of humanity into repentance. And so for 120 years, Noah's up there, and he's just preaching and preaching and preaching. And he's not a very good Baptist pastor because nobody's coming forward to the altar except for his family. And so he takes his family, he puts them in the ark, God seals the door behind him, and God erases the footprint of humanity with a flood that covers all of the earth. And God starts over again with this one family. God preserves humanity in the ark through the flood, and Noah lands there with his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And to these three sons are given this role again to go out to fill the earth, to multiply. And it's interesting that in the unfolding events that as Moses records the history found within the book of Genesis, he takes chapter 10, which is chronologically, it it follows chapter 11, but he places it prior to chapter 11 because it is thematically prior In reading the unfolding events of the table of nations there in chapter 10, we see that Moses is already tipping his his hand, so to speak, and showing us how humanity would roll out. And so he starts in in, in verse 1, he says, These are the generations of the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were to be born, the sons born to them after the flood. And then he runs down through and he gives this list of who would come following. And on and on he goes. And and then what we find in the midst of this list, in verse 8 in chapter 10, is a man named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod means we will rebel. Now, as a parent, one of the things you should hope to do is give your children names that mean we will be pliable, we will be obedient. And so clearly Nimrod's parents missed this one. And so he said, we will rebel He was the firstborn on the earth to be a mighty man, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Look at what he goes on to say. The beginning of his kingdom was, everybody say, Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then in verse 25 in chapter 10, we read of Peleg. It says, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And so what we find is that it's in the unfolding events of Peleg's life wherein Babel takes place. And so this is how we find these things working. So as Babel opens up, what we find is this family, this extended family, is on a reunion that never ends. So this is my living nightmare, a family reunion that nobody knows when to go home and everything is cooked with mayonnaise and the only desserts are banana pudding. And so this is what we see in here. It says the whole earth had one language in the same words. Y'all, if you're striving for unity like this, you're never going to get there. Everybody spoke one language and everybody understood. There's no more reason for high school French. There's no more reason for high school Spanish. There's no more reason for electives in language. Everyone spoke one language. When I said jump, everybody else said, no, we don't want to. But to an authoritative person, they said, how high? There was clear understanding to what everyone said when everyone said it. And it says, as people migrated from the east, so as they move away from the Garden of Eden, they found a plain in the lands of Shinar and settled there. So this is what we see, this mass migration of people. 
the descendants of Shem, the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Japheth, all traveling together, this, this merry band of cousins traveling along in this, this circus on wheels. And as they finally come to this place where they say, this is a nice flat place. We should settle here. And so they gave themselves to this united effort. It says they settled there. They established themselves there. It says, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then the narrator tells us, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, why is he telling us this? Moses writes this, and he wants them to understand the way they built, the way they constructed was decidedly different than the nation of Israel because they didn't have the raw materials present. They didn't have these things available. But even in their statement, come let us make, they're seeking to echo the idea that Moses wants us to see the hubris. He wants to see the unbridled sense of pride and arrogance they had. We had previously read this where God said, come let us make man in our own, everybody say image. He said, come let us make man in our own image. So here what we find is all of humanity has come together and they all have one voice and they all have one language and they look around and they say, come let us make. Let us show God how unified we are. Let us show God how superior we are. Let us show God how advanced we are. Let us take these raw elements and bring them together and let us in our independence do something that we had previously not done. And so they began to construct things. Verse 4 said, they said, come let us, again, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So they look around and, and they recognize that there are so many of us that tents could never contain us. What we need to do is to build in this place a city. And in this city, what we want to do is construct it so is that anyone coming from a distance would see this city, and in the midst of this city, a tower, and this tower would be so grandiose that it would look like it touches the heavens, and in so doing, we will invade the heavens. And so they create for themselves not a tower like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but they construct something uh, referred to as a ziggurat. And so it would have been a tower that had a massive base, and then as you climb towards the heaven, they get sequentially smaller and smaller and smaller. So if you're to look at it from the side, it looks like a ladder or a staircase that you can climb to ascend and to assault the heavens. This is what they gave themselves toward. They said, look, we can all live here. We can all be together. All we have to do is work together, and we can accomplish amazing things for ourselves. And look at what he says here. And let us make a name for ourselves. The heart of what they wanted was a name for themselves. They wanted people in future generations to look at them and say, do you know what those there in Babel, in, in Babel did? Do you know what those on the plains of Shinar did? Do you remember the great city that they built? Do you remember how unified they were? Do you remember just how grandiose and how beautiful and how amazing that tower was? Yet it still stands today. So let us build a name, something that gives us a name for ourselves. Now the interesting thing in this is we've only seen one place in the unfolding history of Genesis where somebody is referred to as having a name for themselves and it's not a positive name. 
Back in chapter 6 and verse 4, the Nephilim are spoken of those who were men of renown or men who had a name for themselves. And they're, they're written of in a negative way. And so what we begin to see in this unfolding narrative is that the people living in the plains of Shinar, they wanted to be recognized for their accomplishments. Now as Moses is constructing and he's putting uh, Genesis together and he's writing and he wants us to see that having a desire to have a name for yourself independent of the Lord is a dishonorable thing. And this is why he comes to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. And the next person to have a name is someone God gives a name to. And it's Abram. God says, I will bless your name and I will make it great. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. To be truly great doesn't require independence from God. It requires reliance and dependence upon him. They were mistaken. Now their understanding of, of why they wanted a name and why they wanted to be self-sufficient stems from their fears. He says, let us make a name for ourselves, verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to have this name so they'd have something to bond them, something to bind them together, something to keep them all headed in the same direction. They didn't want to submit themselves to the Lord. They wanted to find themselves independent of him. And the fascinating thing we see in this is that they are living in strict disobedience to the Lord. Back in chapter 1 and verse 28, they're told to, to multiply and to fill the earth. And in chapter 9 and verse 1, following the flood, Moses is given this, or Noah rather, is given the same instruction it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply it and fill the earth. So in the midst of this, when they have this, this traveling family reunion as they're going down through there and they, they come to this place and they stop and they all congregate together. In the midst of their settling, in the midst of their making a name and in the midst of their stated fear, they live in out and out rebellion to God. The very thing God has told them to do, they reject. We don't want to fill the earth. We want to stay here and be unified. We don't want to go anywhere else. We don't want to journey anywhere else. We as image bearers don't want to take your glory and your image with us when we go other places. We want to do all that we want to do right here. And that's as far as we're willing to go. And they're settling to disobey. In their quest for their own glory, they disobeyed. And in their fear, they failed to trust and rely and be dependent upon God. But man, they were industrious. They accomplished so much. They began to build this city, and they're making bricks, and they're slapping bricks together, and it's getting taller and taller and taller. And, and they'd stand back and say, Ooh, it was down there, but now it's beginning to climb. We're not quite touching the heavens, but man, I am tuckered out by the time I get to the top carrying those bricks in that mortar. And so in the midst of these things, look at what verse 5 says. It says, and the Lord came down to see the city. So this is the image that Moses wants us to see here. Essentially, they're down there kind of busying themselves with the city and the tower, and God's over here, and he's like, 
man, I cannot remember where I put my readers. And so, nope, that's not helping either. I guess I'm going to have to go down there. And so God goes down. And God is standing in their midst, and he has to travel, the text tells us, all the way down and able to see this thing that was supposed to be built clear up to the heavens. He invests himself in them to the point where Moses wants us to see the ridiculous efforts of their ingenuity and how their unity was failing. This thing they said they were going to accomplish, this thing they said would touch the heavens, God peers down and he's like, Man, it is a cloudy day. I can't even begin to I guess I'm just going to have to go down there. And so he goes down to investigate exactly what's going on. And, and in this, we begin to see that Moses is writing this in such a way to say, this is just insanity. It's insane to think that their unity would lead them to be independent of God. And we see it as well in how he refers to them. They're no longer this people traveling through. He says they are the children of man. They're nothing but kids running around. Naive, unwise, rebellious. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. See, I think there's a way to read verse 6 that leads us to this understanding that God is in heaven thinking, oy vey, what have I done? Here they go again, and they're going to best me, and they're going to they're attack me, and I won't be able to stand against them. There's a way to read that, and that's our outcome, but that is a way to read that that is inappropriate. That is a way to read that that is, simply put, wrong. This word here that is used, that nothing now will be impossible for them, that all they propose to do, when you see that used over and over again in Scripture, when it is used of humanity, it's always used to describe some nefarious plot. It's always used to describe some evil that humanity is going to engage in. And what we recognize in the midst of this is that they were already living in stark rebellion to the Lord, weren't they? Their first act of rebellion, their first act of disbelief their first sin was a failure to fill the earth they gathered together and refused to be dispersed they wanted to live for their own glory and not for the glory of God so that in this what God is essentially doing in saying that there's nothing if they set their minds to that they won't accomplish what he means to say and what Moses is communicating to us there is no evil that they will not accomplish together God recognizes that if humanity is left alone, it will send itself into a place where it is irredeemable. God recognizes that if he does not step into the middle of this, that if left to their devices, they will send themselves once again down a path of complete and utter rebellion and ruin. So God introduces himself into the midst of their efforts and he frustrates their ingenuity. Verse 7 says, come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Come let us go down and frustrate it so they may not understand one another's speech. And we see that God goes down and graciously frustrates them. I think that's a hard thing for some of us to see and it's a hard thing for some of us to experience. Some of the times when the Lord shows himself to be most pressing and most evident and most involved in our lives, it leads us to a significant experience of frustration. We're going along and we suppose that we're doing just fine and everything's going just the way that we want it. 
And God shows up and everything goes wrong. Everything gets harder, everything gets more difficult. Y'all, it's his grace and mercy that he showed up. If left to their own devices, if left in their own sufficiency, if left to themselves, they would have gone through this life supposing themselves to be independent of God instead of the way that he has created us, which is to be dependent upon him in all things. Verses 8 and 9 conclude this for us, and they say, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city, and therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God's will and his desires, as stated in Genesis 1.28, as repeated in Genesis 9.1, were accomplished in this disobedient and wayward people. It is helpful for us to remember that the Lord's will will be accomplished. It is certainly accomplished. And his movement and his transition of this people is to take them from being independent to decidedly dependent upon him. God takes them in their ingenuity. He takes them in, 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 in their self-sufficiency, and he frustrates their efforts. If you were to describe a utopia, if you were to describe the efforts of everybody working together, this is what we see in the example of Babel. And what does God do? He comes down and he frustrates it because he recognizes in their unity they had moved to be independent of him. We recognize as well that what they wanted was their fame. They wanted their glory. They wanted a name people would remember. They wanted a history that was favorable to them. And they acted in a, such a way as to get there. Now as image bearers, as those we read about in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, they're made in the image and the likeness of God, meant to convey, meant to carry, meant to be representatives of his glory and his renown. And listen, that same thing applies to you today. So all of humanity, believers and unbelievers, are made in the image and the likeness of God. But as Christians, we recognize the special opportunity and the responsibility of carrying and conveying his glory to those that have not seen it yet. Now what they wanted to do was to hold on to this and to not spread it anywhere. They didn't want the world to be enveloped in the glory of God. They wanted to be safe. They wanted to be secure. And they wanted to be together. And in so doing, they acted in complete rebellion. You see, these people had hope in themselves, but God took them from having hope in themselves to leading them to recognize that they would have hope only in him. Now, see this today. You can see this in many of the platforms people put forward and say, this is my group, and this is what we stand for, and this is what we hope to accomplish. And on some level, you read it, and you say, wouldn't life be better if there was no more poverty? Wouldn't life be better if there were no more this? Wouldn't life be better if there were no more that? But, it, but many of those statements and many of those platforms, if we were to drill down, what they are resting on, what they are advancing, is not a humanity built on the sufficiency of God and full dependence of him and moving to move forward in his power, but it is independence from God. God's name never mentioned, his heart never in it, his strength never acquired. Mark Sayers describes it like this. He says, the assumption is that we have reached a new era in human history, a post-conflict world in which we'll gently slide toward a future both diverse and tolerant, 
a tomorrow in which cooperation, technology, and globalization will lead the world into a new and wonderful present. And this is salvation for many of the people we run into on our streets. And this is the hope that we experience, many of us, in the schools of our communities. And this is what we hear many of us in the mouths of our leaders. That the advancements in medicine, the advancements in industry, and the advancements in humanity will usher in an amazing peace. And that in that peace there will be prosperity for all. And that is an appealing message. I mean, that's not just an appealing message. That strikes at the heart of, of humanity's desires. I want to be safe and secure. I want to be taken care of. I want my family taken care of. I want my kids to have a better future than I do. I want their upbringing to be more joyous. I want them to have more experiences. And so we begin to make plans. We begin to align our hearts with these promises that will mate out, that will bring this reality. But in so doing, many of us have slipped away from any dependence upon the Lord. In so doing, many of us have sacrificed what it is to be a reliant witness of God. We've sacrificed our morals, we've sacrificed our time, we have surrendered our hearts to pursuing a vision of the future that God never desired for us to have. They've placed our hopes in themselves instead of hope in Him. Now in verse 5, what we read is that God stepped down into their existence and that He frustrated their efforts. So God steps down into their independence and he frustrates it. But the good news for you and me is that God did not step down into our frustration and leave it. But that God in the person of Jesus stepped down into our self-sufficiency. He stepped down into our independence. And he broke us to both of these things in the person of Jesus. That from our frustration we would find obedience and faithfulness to him. That in our deadness we would be made alive. That God in the person of Jesus steps into humanity. And that he takes upon himself the results of humanity's best attempt. He suffered and dies for us. He took on my sin. He takes on my sin. And that suffering the consequences of my rebellion and of your rebellion, God heaps upon him his displeasure. Jesus died in your stead. Jesus died in the place of the person that you would look at and say your worldview is abysmal, you're a terrible person, and still Jesus died in their place because he recognized that they were wayward, lost, and rebellion. And friends, so were you. It's not that you were marginally bad, but headed towards being good, and God found you on this bypass towards goodness and righteousness and said, join me, let's go. God found you dead and wayward in your sins and trespasses. He found you moving away from him at breakneck pace. And he invested himself in you by stepping into the midst of your frustration and releasing you from the bondage of sin. In Christ, you have been made free. And taking on our sin and death, he was entered into the grave. And then in three days, God rose him up again, overcoming sin and death so that you and I might have a hope in a future. And listen, it's a hope in a future not situated on humanity doing well together. It's a hope in a future situated, placed in, solidly founded in, resting forever in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. 
We will never be lost. We will never be wayward. We will never be abandoned. We're not there in the city saying, I need to build it. I need to build a tower. I need to have a name for myself. There's only one name that Christians were ever meant to raise. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's not third party. It's not you naming your grandchild MAGA. Listen, you, don't, you may still burn for Bernie, but the only name you get to raise and be a Christian is the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? So much frustration. There's so much loss of heart in the midst of this, but what we have to recognize is that God created us to be broken, dependent people, never to live lives independent of him, only ever to live lives raising his name high. Now listen to this. If you're not a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ, God calls you to move from your frustration, your indifference, and your independence and to submit yourself to him, to cry out to him, Father, forgive me for I have sinned, redeem me, and save me. And if you are a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ, he gives you opportunity to live out the beautiful display, the imperfect display, but the beautiful display of his glory to lost men and women who need to hear it. And this is why when Jesus prepares to leave in Matthew 28, he recognizes the mistake they made in Babel. They settled there. They refused to leave. They disobeyed Genesis 1.28. They disobeyed Genesis 9.1. And so Jesus turns to the disciples as he's preparing to depart. And he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your goodness, for your mercy and grace, for the compassion you extend to us in our waywardness. God, you have created us as citizens of your kingdom to be dependent. Forgive us when we live lives in independence. Forgive us when we place our hope on something less, something trivial. Something that is even, uh, has the appearance of being substantial and of being steadfast. But in the unfolding of time and of all eternity, God, it will pass away and it will not become nothing but dust. God, help us to rest in our dependence upon you. And help us to call those men and women around us to trust in you and in your goodness and your faithfulness. Father, we pray for those who have yet to turn their hearts to you. And God, pray that you would stir it in their hearts, that you would call them unto salvation. You're trustworthy. You're faithful and true. God, I pray that you would guide and direct us in these next moments as we have opportunity to turn our hearts towards you in worship and reflection. God, would you finish the good work that you started in us? Would you keep us steadfast and reliant upon you? We submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen.